Howdy, everybody. Welcome to another BP Movie Journal. I'm David Bax. I'm Tyler Smith. And uh, let's get to it. Yeah. Because once again, I've seen a ton of stuff. This will, uh, this sh- you know, I- I'm thinking this will taper off, this I- this thing of me seeing more movies than you have, because I'm trying to cram for our best of. Yeah. So I'm trying to fit in a lot of stuff. But I'm also, um, seem to have made, sometimes I seem to, every year I seem to make New Year's resolutions without realizing it. Mm-hmm. And so I am trying to watch more movies this year, uh, you know, apart from what I have to watch to review. I found myself watching in the, over the past couple of years being so focused, yeah. you know, and, and we do, um, I, I contributed a list for, uh, the Rupert Pumpkin, Rupert, Rupert Pumpkin speaks blog about the yeah. best older movies I saw in 2014. And it was like the third year in a row I've done that. Um, it hasn't posted yet. Uh, I don't know what he's hanging. Maybe he's saving the best for last. Um, but, uh, it always takes like a solid month for that thing to post. Um, but I, I, every year I'm like, man, I have such a small, I have a shamefully small field to pull from. So I am actively trying to watch more older movies. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and hopefully trying to fill in some of the, some of the, um, blind spots of like great movies that I've never seen before. Right. Um, and also I want to rewatch some of the, I buy these great movies, you know, and it's been, um, you know, I, I, I used to complain that you held on to my copy of in the mood for love for like a year and a half mm. you want to know something what? since you gave it back i haven't watched it oh of course not yeah, yeah. and so i want to do things like, uh, so that's something i'm trying to do um we did get a note about talking about movies we've rewatched in the movie journal whereas we seem to have been focusing on movies we've seen for the first time do people want um, us to talk about movies at least re- one person does so maybe in the comment section of this uh yeah Speak up, make your voice heard. Let us know if you want to hear movie oh, about all right. movies we've rewatched. Because that bumps my movie, uh, my list up from two to three. Okay, um, pretty I, exciting. I don't think I've rewatched anything this week. Yeah, because we talked about Alien Resurrection last week, right? We did. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That was the last thing I rewatched. Okay. Um, well, I'll give it. A, I'll, I'll start. And you might have seen this one actually. Have you seen Still Alice? No, I haven't. Okay. Uh it's quite good. Okay. Um it's uh it, it's it's the kind of movie that I sometimes don't respond to right away because I because it's so um I guess What's what I'm looking for? Like conventional sounds like a derogative, but it's run of the mill. No, I, I just mean in its like presentation, it's not, you know, it's not knocking down walls. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it, it's straightforward. It, yes. Yeah, it's straightforward is a good, good way to put it. Um, because it's so much about this character and the performance, which is the kind of thing that I've talked about on the show is not always something that I recognize or give credit to. Um, that often, I think um, I've, I've, I remember saying this before about Michael Shannon about when when a when an actor is consistently great, yeah, I forget to praise them for being great. Mm-hmm. Whereas directors, I don't do that, or cinematographers, I don't do that. I always notice, wow, that's amazing, but I take great acting for granted sometimes. Hmm, that's interesting, um, and that very much could you know could have been the uh, the case here with. Um, julianne moore's performance uh and also alec baldwin's by the way i, I kind of wasn't expecting you know what oddly enough as much as uh 
as much as I heard the movie was very good, and of course she's getting all the buzz, she's probably going to win the Oscar. Okay. Um, every time I read about it, the part that interested me most was Alec Baldwin's part and the fact that he's, that it's, you know, that he's known as kind of a comedic actor these days. Mm-hmm. And he has such a, he's almost a little Christopher Walken-like. Okay. And so he brings with him a yeah. certain bravado and a certain cadence and stuff that people that you think like, well, surely he won't be great at this. But then, of course, you see Christopher Walken and Catch Me If You Can, and it's right, amazing. Right. And I feel like it would be this uh, for Alec Baldwin, yeah, which a, I'm excited that, about. That, that, that you're not halfway through his first scene, you're not thinking about a Thirty Rock. <laughs> um, right. Uh, yeah, he's he's very good. It's natural for me to I think. Um, uh, to to side with Alec Baldwin's character or be interested in Alec Baldwin's character because as terrify as terrifying as it is, the idea of having Alzheimer's, mm. I think um I'm the type of person I feel like you are too, and a lot of people are, um who the only thing that seems scarier to me than getting Alzheimer's is my wife getting Alzheimer's. Oh yeah. Like that that would be worse for me. I'd rather it happen to me. Um and uh you know, there's a. I think I told you I have this fascination with words or phrases that exist in other languages that we don't have okay. in English. And there's I can't remember the the language if it's if it's Arabic or something from that region. There's a phrase, a commonly used phrase that essentially means, "I hope I die before you do." Oh wow! Um, which sounds like kind of dark, but it's a way of saying like I love you so much that I I can't bear it. I couldn't bear. Uh, you dying. Wow. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that's that's off topic, and I don't need to spend that much time talking about Still Alice. Um, it's yeah, it's it, it's it's a really good uh, movie that um, is sort of unadorned in its presentation, and rightfully so because Julianne Moore is doing such great work that she fills up the frame all on her own. Yeah, um, and everyone. I, it's not just Julianne Moore, actually. Um, I said all of Baldwin. Kristen Stewart is great. Um, her other two, Kristen Stewart plays her youngest daughter. Mm. Her other two kids are uh, Kate Bosworth and Hunter Parrish from Weeds. Oh yeah. Um, and then I forget the name of the actor who plays her doctor. Uh, he's in a few scenes, and he's like that. Always seems to me, I'm. <laughs> I, I like I, I say that I don't pay that much attention to actors, but one thing I, I always do pay attention to the actor who has to play the doctor giving bad news because it seems like a really thankless role as an actor. Um, but, uh, cause it's, I I mean, it's really just an expositional thing. Um, but you disagree with me. I, you know what, here's the thing. I agree with you, but the actor in me actually, okay. So I think back in Springfield, I, I believe I was in a play that you might have seen. Okay. Uh, in which it's, it's, uh, a true story in which a guy tells the, the story of going blind. Did you see that? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, and but you I, weren't that guy. I I was that guy in a different because uh, I was double cast. Oh okay. So depending on the night, uh, oh the the blind guy. Yeah. No, he played himself. Uh, oh, okay. And then there was a uh, there was one guy cast as his younger self, and those never changed. But everybody else, we would change parts and stuff like that. And I at one and one night I would play the doctor giving him the bad news. Mm-hmm. So I've actually played that character. It's only one scene though. It does, he doesn't come back. Uh, and it is, it's, it's thankless, uh, sort of, 
it's thankless as far as the lines aren't giving you much. But you can actually give a you can provide a lot of backstory for yourself because just like this is my job. I have to do this. I my job, not as an actor, as a doctor, my job is to give people's life exposition. You're going to make it. <laughs> you are going to die. And knowing that every like the next sentence I say is going to change this person's life for good or ill. And and it's very and you can really imbue that with a lot of a lot of weight. Like how do do I have to sort of kind of I don't know, do I have to make this a little bit robotic lest I start to get emotionally mm-hmm. involved, or do I let myself get emotionally involved? I don't know. I feel like it's actually something it's it's a it's rare. It doesn't happen that much, but a, a role like that is actually something, even as as completely ex- expository as the dialogue is, an actor can actually do something with it if they choose to. Yeah, and that's why I always pay attention. The so this guy's great, whose name I forget. I always uh, always think of Danny DeVito in, in The Virgin Suicides, which is a mm-hmm. twist on that role. He's more just a psychiatrist type, yeah. but it's still. He's mostly there for uh, the youngest Lisbon daughter to have her line about, obviously, you've never been a 13-year-old girl, yes. um, but he's fantastic. And the other one is the doctor on Six Feet Under who tells Peter Krause that he has an arterial venous malformation. And while he's telling him this like life-changing, you, you have this thing that could kill you at any moment news, he like notices he has a bit of dried mustard on his tie and is like... Sort of callously like <laughs> scratching at his tie while he's telling Peter Krause this. That's uh, those are my, those are three of my favorite uh, doctor giving news uh, or doctor talking to patient scenes. All right, we've gone way too far on. Uh, we've gone way too long on Still Alice. I want to jump to uh, very very much connected. Uh, Still Alice is directed by um, uh, two people who are husbands: Wash, Wash Westmoreland and Richard Glatzer. Wait, what's the first name? Wash Westmoreland. Oh, I don't like that at all. <laughs> um, There's and, only one wash I, I'll ever like. Uh, it's the guy from Firefly. That's right? who I thought. Um, but Richard Glatzer um, has ALS and actually directed Still Alice by giving notes on his iPad because he can't talk. Oh, wow. Um, so he's like in a chair and talks on his iPad. Um, and um, and that's not really the, the point. That's just something interesting. But just coincidentally... Um, Presented by Outfest LA at the Billy Wilder Theater in Westwood, they were showing Richard Glad before Wash Westman was his partner, Richard Glatzer's early work. They showed a 15-minute documentary he made called Glamazon, the Barbara LeMay story, which okay. is about a, um, burle- a, a this woman who was a famous burlesque dance, I guess famous in burlesque circles, and then went into sort of um, being re-glorified later in her life by like um, – uh, drag circles and stuff because it turned out she was mostly passing as a woman but she was born she was assigned male at birth mm. at birth um and that's a re- that was a really fun uh just 15 minutes and she she was a real character and that was something he made in the early 90s and then a feature film he made called grief which is about a group of people who um write for a um people's court type tv show where okay. it's a real judge, but these are all actors and fake stories, which for all I know is how these Judge Judy and people's court types are really made. Very po- Anytime I'm <laughs> uh, waiting for my oil to be changed uh, or something to be done on my car, I will sit in the waiting room and I and I, it's, it's often either Judge Judy or Judge Joe Brown. I think uh-huh. that's him. Uh, well, this, or, or Family Feud. Well, Richard Glatzer, who 
uh, Richard Glasser um, worked on divorce court. So uh, okay. I think that might be where he got these ideas. So it's basically just a sort of relationship comedy. It, you know, one of the uh, the it's the group of writers and the producer are all very close, but also kind of it's still a work relationship. So there's still some tensions. And one of the like the one of the head two head writers. It takes place the week that is one year since his boyfriend died of AIDS. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's sort of the catalyst. That's why it's called grief. Okay. Um, it's a, it's, it's been a long time since I've watched a movie that was that truly low budget. Um, and it was kind of refreshing. I, I kind of enjoyed okay. it. Um, I mean, this is the kind of movie that it played at Sundance in 92 or whatever, back when Sundance, I, I mean, I don't know. I've never been to Sundance, but you yeah. know, um, before it was a place that Studio Indies went and Jupiter Ascending had its secret premiere and stuff like that. <laughs> um, uh, I guess before there was a cookie-cutter Sundance type of movie, which yeah. I think there is now. Um, I think the one this year has the most annoying title, Me and Earl and the Dying Girl. Have you heard of that? Ugh. Isn't that the worst title? I mean, it's no Ain't Them Bodies Saints, but it's it's pretty bad. I think it's worse. You think so? I think because I'm more the embarrassed. Thing? Yeah. I find me and Earl and the, and the Dying Girl more embarrassing to say than Ain't Them Bodies Saints. Ugh. Me and Earl and the Dying Girl sounds like someone trying too hard to make a, a, a fun, quirky title. Whereas Ain't Them Bodies Saints, almost I almost have to respect it because it's like someone making a movie and then naming it something that will keep people from seeing it. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, and Earl and the, yeah, no, thank you. That's a terrible title. It's do you know if, uh, I don't know if our Sundance correspondent, Matt Warren, do you know if he saw it? It was one? not on his, uh, okay. write up list. So I don't know. I don't think he saw that one. Um, so, uh, that's, that was my weekend. Why don't I toss it to you for one of your two or three things, depending on how you decide to do this. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm not going to go in chronological order because I also saw a Julianne Moore film. How about that? Yeah. I saw Sergei Bodrov's Seventh Son sitting I, on the shelf for several years at this point. I forgot that she was in that. Yes, she's the villain. I um so that it reunited with her uh, Big Lebowski co-star. Absolutely, they 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 wanted to wait until the, it was just the right script, <laughs> <laughs> and they, and they I, found it. I didn't see it. I, I can't. Now, I was at, yeah, you said that this has been sitting on the shelf because I was at the panel, the Comic-Con panel for Seventh Son yeah. over a year ago. Not this past Comic-Con, but in yeah. 2013. Yeah, so the 2013, yeah. Yeah. And apparently it's, I was talking to some some critics at the screening, and apparently it's it had been uh, bandied about in, pre, it was in pre-production hell, it was in production hell, post-production hell. So it's been around since like 2011. Okay. I don't know if it's been filmed or it was being filmed at the time but yeah it's this has been years in the making but it also suffered because legendary's partnership switched from warner brothers to universal Mm. Uh, because when i saw the panel at comic-con it was the legendary slash warner brothers panel okay um but now this is being released by legendary universal i wonder if warner brothers would have committed more to to the film uh i don't know this feels like a universal type of movie i mean universal makes a lot of like your stuff. I just mean in the, as far as the campaign, the because it feels like between me, my seeing it at the beginning of a YouTube, uh, a trailer for it at the beginning of a YouTube clip, um, <laughs> and it's being released. It was like a couple of days. I first I heard of this film for the first time. I don't know a week ago, and then six days ago, 
you forwarded me the screening information. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, I, I just feel like it's I feel like it's going to crash and burn and uh, not going to do very well. And but whatever, uh, that's neither here nor there. The film itself, um, I went in expecting very little. That is mostly what I got. However, I want to be positive. I respect the art direction. I thought it was, you know, it's it's a everything everything about it is like uh that movie, it's like Lady Hawk. It's like something from the 80s. A very sincere sword and sorcery type of film. And I almost and I kind of admire that. Yeah, that almost sounds Yeah. In a way it's just like they're not winking. They're right. not So th- this is the serious your highness. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> Feel free to work that into your review when you're at that time. I didn't see Your Highness, so I, <laughs> oh, okay. I can't. I'm sorry. Um, but yeah, uh, it's it has that vibe to it, and I kind of admire that. Um, except, and technically, it's all there. I saw I I, I saw that it was a uh, the production designer was uh, Dante Ferretti, who's of course very dependable. Um, I think yes. he's either won or been nominated for several Oscars. He's one of the few production designers whose names I know. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, you know, we're dealing with castles and caves and all that, and they're all practical sets, and it just felt like a very lived-in world, and that was and that was really nice. Same with the costumes. The costume costumes worked really well. Um, the uh, the music was appropriately bombastic, and sure enough, it was Marco Beltrami who has been knocking out out of the park the last few years. Um, especially for his score for the homesman, which I thought was great. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the problem comes with the characters, dialogue, story, and acting. <laughs> <laughs> Technically, it's all there. Um, no, and my memory from the clips they showed at Comic Con is that Jeff Bridges does kind of a funny voice. Yeah, you thought his voice was funny in The Giver. You just <laughs> wait until you see Seventh Son, um, and it's one of those things that like. He plays the character so oddly, which, again, I kind of admire, except if the character were simply a comic relief or a lovable curmudgeon or something like that, that would be one thing. But they try to give but, him this tragic he, backstory. He's, he's the Gandalf? Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, he's he's like Gandalf if Gandalf even had more backstory. So he's more really like Dumbledore on. then? Uh, well, they didn't give Dumbledore much backstory in the films. But, yes, oh, okay. I do know some of his backstory. It's Yes, it's more like that. I, I often forget. <laughs> I often forget what things in the books aren't in the films. Even though I've seen the films multiple times, yeah, uh, I'm so attached to the books that sometimes I forget what stuff isn't in there. Like the character, I believe his name is like Grindelwald or something like that. Uh huh. Yeah, he's. We see an image of him. That's right. In the film, yeah. the end. But um, yeah, it's right before the closing credits. Very strange. It's a weird, weird thing to cut, <laughs> cut to cut to. Um, but uh, anyway, so but his performance is very strange for the type of character it is. Julianne Moore is just not even there. I mean, I it's I don't blame her. The character's written in a super bland way, but she is basically like the queen of darkness here. And if ever there was a, an excuse to really overact, this was it. But she decide. I think she she seemed to be retreating from the tone of the material, and mm. it just didn't work really well at all. And I mean, there were literal laughs in the theater anytime. Uh, anytime a new piece of information or a new piece of the general mythology of the world was introduced, uh-huh. like a character, oh, like there's this uh, this young a young witch 
is falling in love uh, in love with a witch hunter, and uh, Starcross, Starcross Love, absolutely. <laughs> and so, and he he helps. She's like in a lake. She appears in a in a lake, and so he helps her out of the lake. And this little like blue spark uh, ignites between their hands, and it's a neat little moment. And then she explains like. It, it's been said that wi- that when a witch is walking in the moonlight, when she touches the hand of the man she's meant to be with, there will be a blue spark. I'm like, okay. that is so specific. Yeah. <laughs> that, that is, if they say that, then there's a rule for everything. <laughs> and then she said uh, it could also be du- uh, like dust, like witch dust or something like that. Witch I, dust. Okay. And I was like, this is. Not, yeah. And that say, was, it doesn't sound like you're describing regular dust. Right. Oh, regular witch dust does not cause a blue spark. And so the, the film is just, it's, it's forgettable. No one's going to remember it. It's technically interesting. And uh, the use of 3D was pretty solid. Oh, um, 3D. And there were a couple of sequ- a couple action, action sequences that were kind of fun. Uh, but in the end, who gives a shit? <laughs> You know, uh, I, some of the critics and I were talking uh, about the film and the tagline might as well just be seventh son. Let's get this over with. <laughs> uh, I'm glad that you talk to people at uh, screenings. I don't talk to that many. I talk to Aaron Newworth, who then knows everybody. Yeah. Cause and then he introduces me to them. That dude, like, uh, Aaron's like a superhero. Okay. Yeah. He's, uh seems to have... Endless positivity and confidence in all situations. Yeah. He also is up on all movies, TV, and video games. Yeah. And works a full-time job and seems to be constantly writing. Yeah. I, I don't get it. I don't get it, and I feel like, I don't know, I feel like, do we have to, if we kill him, <laughs> can we gain his power? We'd have to eat him, too. We'd have to eat him. <laughs> yeah. I'm willing to do <laughs> it if you are. I just want to make sure you were on board. I know. Oh, yeah, that hey, sounds good you me. don't have to tell me. That you have to eat someone to gain their power. All right? I'm well aware. <laughs> all right. Um, I will move on to the next thing I saw, which I'm very excited to talk about. There will be a review on the website soon. Um, it is the best movie of 1981 that I'm only just now seeing because Kino Lorber is putting out uh, on Blu-ray. It comes out in about a week and a half, I think, on Blu-ray. Uh, Jacques Rivette's 1981 film Le Pont du Nord, which okay. means Bridge of the North, I think. All right. Uh, or maybe just North Bridge. Uh, I don't know, but, uh, I live right by Northbridge. <laughs> no, you don't. I'm <laughs> um, That's a Northridge pun. <laughs> yeah. Which, you, know, you don't get a chance to make very often. Um, but this movie is fantastic. Uh, it is a movie that you only over the course of the film come to realize is shot entirely outside, except for one time they're on a subway, not a subway, but mm-hmm. like a commuter train that's above ground that's the closest you come to actually being inside is anyway um and it's essentially two i guess homeless women uh for one reason or another who seem to be brought together by fate because they keep running into each other and then just decide all right let's stick to it uh one of them has just gotten out of prison Mm -hmm. the other one is just insane i guess we don't really get to know any of her backstory or even her real name she calls herself baptiste but the other woman even insists that's not your name. Um, and so the woman who got out of prison, the story, as uh, as it were, is that the woman who got out of prison is trying to reconnect with her old boyfriend. And he's like, yeah, yeah, well, we can be together in a few days, but I'm working. He's kind of a low-level criminal. And he's like, I'm working on a thing. I can't really 
um, and they they end up stealing some papers from him, whatever he's working on, uh, and finding this map of Paris. It takes place in Paris, um, which they decide the way the map, the markings on the map, reminds the one woman of a like sort of fantasy game she played as a child, and so they sort of come to the conclusion that whatever's going on is some conspiracy based on this game. We don't. Even at the end of the movie, we don't know if that's really true or not. They just essentially go on a uh, like maybe like a seventh son, like a, a mystical quest throughout Paris based on <laughs> what they've decided this map means. And then they they're encountering the 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 locales are all very mundane. Uh, you know, they're um, construction sites that aren't completed or um, abandoned lots or just just places in the outskirts of Paris mm-hmm. that they've decided like, okay, this is the inn or this is the prison and this is where this is supposed to happen. And they're just following their own internal logic. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, one of them is insane. <laughs> um, uh, and Jacques Rivette shoots the city in such a way that 90% of the time it's realism. But every once in a while he'll frame something in a way or build something, there's a construction site that looks like a dragon, and it's like, okay, clearly that's a bit of production design yeah. it, that, like, uh, Baptiste sees a dragon, but anyone will look at that and be like, ha, that looks like a dragon. Um, but then he'll shoot, like, uh, there are, I'm a huge fan Do you think, movies. out of curiosity, do you, do you know if uh, this film was an influence on Terry Gilliam at all for The Fisher King? Oh, that's a good, that's a good question. It's not as overt. Okay. Uh, you know, as the future I assume King becomes. not, but I mean, but homeless is, man who's yeah. Um, no, I mean, when I say homeless, you're probably picturing like a bag lady. Baptiste looks like a normal person. Uh, that's part of the I don't know magical realism is these women never in the entire movie shower or sleep in an actual bed. They sleep on mm-hmm. a park bench. They sleep in a movie theater, but we don't go in with them because okay. the movie takes place outside, uh, and they sleep in a car that happens to be open and the woman in the morning is like, did you sleep here? And she's like, yeah, he's the one's like, that's cool. Uh, I have to leave for work in two minutes. So just, she's like cool with it. Um, uh, but here's something I love in a movie, uh, that really gets my, uh, motor running when I'm watching a movie. I love shots in movies that don't immediately seem to have any connection to the story of what's going on. Okay. Uh, and so Jacques Rivette keeps returning to this fountain with statues of lions with, like, the waters coming out of the lion's mouth. Okay. Um, and he'll approach it in different ways. Sometimes he's just still shot straight on of the lion or of, from the side. Or sometimes the shot is attached to, like, a some sort of vehicle that will, like, circle the fountain and then push in on the lions. Mm-hmm. And it's not directly connected to anything, but um, it gives you – you start to really consider these lions as um, some sort of – I don't know if it's supposed to be idolatry or if they're supposed to be mythic beasts or hmm. whatever, but um, it's this mundane story about these two marginalized women walking around Paris according to their own internal logic um, that also has this very grand and mythic feel to it. Uh, it's phenomenal, um, and you can pick it up on Blu-ray. In um, about a month and a half. No, a week and a half. week and a half. I think February 17th, whatever, whatever the Tuesday after Valentine's Day is, that's... That's when it comes out. Okay. Um, and then let me also talk about oh a phenomenal documentary that I that I uh, watched um, that um, you can get on uh, Amazon uh, 
I rented it from Amazon, uh, Amazon Instant Video. Okay. Uh, AIV. Um, <laughs> I don't know if they go by that. Um, but uh, it's the documentary. It, it, it might be nominated for an Oscar. I don't pay attention to this. It's called Last Days in Vietnam. It is. It is nominated. Yes. Well, uh, for good reason. Okay. It, it's fantastic. It Literally, it's the kind of documentary that's – there's so much available footage and it's such – a fan, uh, 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 an engrossing story that I kept finding myself thinking and watching the movie. How is it? How did this movie not get made before 2014? Yeah. Um, and it's just about the last. I mean, I guess technically it covers the last two years before the evacuation of Saigon, but really it covers most of that ground really quick, and it's really about the last few days. Um, that's why it's called Last Days mm-hmm. in Vietnam. Um, and the. Uh, it, it wasn't about you know the evacuation of Americans was pretty easy to organize and get out. It was all the South Vietnamese right. who came and, and you know there was never an official like okay we're taking so many people but the the Americans who were leaving were basically looking around and saying these people um, are my friends you know yeah. uh, or they're just innocent people and when the uh, North Vietnamese army comes in, it's going to be awful for them. And yeah. I can't in good conscience just leave these people behind. Uh, and they took just tens of thousands of people hmm. um, um, to a lot of them to the Philippines until the Philippines made them stop bringing them there. Yeah. Um, and then a lot of them to America as well. Um, it, it's just a fascinating story. And again, there's so much footage. Yeah. I don't even know how, uh, like how has this not all been seen before that like i feel like when you think of the, the evacuation of saigon you always see that one picture with the helicopter on the roof with the ladder going up yeah which is not the embassy which is what i always thought was the american embassy oh i assumed yeah but, but that's they even say it like one of the guys that even says in the movie everyone thinks that's the embassy that's just an apartment building where an american official lived and a bunch of vietnamese came got on the helicopter mm. with him uh the embassy is a much bigger building and in fact a huge compound um and they were landing um, for 18 hours straight, they had 75 hel- helicopters going back and forth from aircraft car- carriers landing in the – there was like a – in the parking lot next to the pool. There was a yeah. pool in the embassy grounds and then also on the roof. And they could get – there were these big like – I think they're called Chinooks, Chinooks, the big mm-hmm. helicopters. They could carry like 40 to 50 people. And so they would just be like having them in line, like either take them up the stairs to the, the roof of the embassy or get into the parking lot and just for – you know, so that's – 40, 50 people at a time on yeah. 75 helicopters for 18 hours. Uh, I have two questions. Number one, did it specify how many of the, the South Vietnamese were left behind? Um, have, even even that many people, I have to assume, there's still oh, yeah, I mean, only was, scratched the surface. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it, there's some text on screen um, that at the end about what happened to the yeah. – um, citizens of Saigon, but there is also some story about people who wanted to get out and were marked to get out, and uh, the evacuation just sort of had to stop at a certain point. And yeah. um, there were promises made that by certain American officials that they weren't their hands were tied; they weren't able to. Leave. It's, it's yeah. there's some pretty tragic stuff that happened. In it. uh, it's it's fantastic. The other question that I have, and this is this may sound like a joke, I don't mean for it to. So you said that a lot of the South Vietnamese were brought. To America, yeah. Do you happen to know 
what happened to them here? I don't know, actually. That's a good question. Because... Again, I think most of them went to the Philippines until the very end when um, the North Vietnamese did come into Saigon. The Philippines essentially stopped taking South Vietnamese because they now didn't want to piss off the North Vietnamese who were running both Vietnam, like all of Vietnam at that point. Um so it wasn't. So I, I don't know how many actually came to America okay. or if they came to Hawaii or what. But my my reason for asking is that my so my wife is from Minnesota. Uh huh. Minnesota has a surprisingly large Vietnamese population, and I'm not sure why. There isn't that weird. There's pockets like that. Like yeah. here, where we live in Southern California, there. There are Armenians. There are more Armenian. Everyone. I mean, that's. I don't know if this is true. Yeah. But if you come to Los Angeles, you'll hear over and over again there are more Armenians here than there are in Armenia. That's. I don't know if that's true, but that's just a thing that gets said all yeah. the time. And my hometown of St. Louis has more Bosnians per capita than any other place outside of Bosnia. And then what is the, I want? I feel bad. I feel like I'm going to mispronounce this. The uh, from Gran Torino. Oh, Mong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't remember where does that take place. That's Detroit. Detroit. Okay. Yeah. All right. Because I think there might be, I think there might be a pretty big Hmong population in Minnesota as well. Okay. But I'm not, I don't remember exactly. But yeah, it's it is odd the way that that happens sometimes. I'm always fascinated when there's you, you know when you talk about like illegal immigration from Mexico that so much of the so many of them wind up in Colorado. Like that's a few states up. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And just it seems to me. California, New Mexico, Arizona, Texas would well, be where... But, okay, in sheer numbers, obviously, California is huge. Of course. But there are more Mexican-Americans as a percentage of the population in Illinois than in California. Hmm. That's weird. Yeah. This is all very strange. <laughs> what a wonderful melting pot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. All right. Uh, uh, how many more I you I think got? it's your turn now. Okay. Um, you know what? I'm going to jump to something that I've uh, seen already. Okay. Okay. I uh, rewatched because a friend of the show, Jason Eakin, got this for me for Christmas. Um, the two disc special edition Blu ray of David Fincher's Zodiac. So I started watching Zodiac. And I, and I finished it. I watched it over a you couple started of days. Watching I started it watching and it, it and I finished it, which incidentally is how, <laughs> That's what how I you get, watch I a movie. That. You start yeah. and then you go. <laughs> um, it's, only, it's actually a thing I've only recently started doing. Up until right. now. I haven't actually officially finished anything, <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah. So <laughs> I hope Bruce Willis helped that that kid who saw <laughs> dead people work his problems out. I assume he did. Um, yeah. Uh, so I know we've talked about Zodiac a lot, and uh, listeners, you don't forget you can purchase our episode about the year two thousand seven for a mere do- uh, one dollar and twenty nine cents. But yeah, you should do that. Uh, in which we talk about Zodiac. Um, so of course 2007 great year and there were three one could I don't like to use the word masterpiece lightly there were three masterpieces made that year there were, uh you know there will be blood no country for old men and zodiac okay and the more i think about it i think zodiac might blow the other two away uh hmm. that is not a thing i say lightly especially because as you know when we made our list of like the best movies of the 20 aughts, I put There Will Be Blood as number one. But the more I watch Zodiac, the more absolutely astonishing I find that film. It is 
I mean, people love Fincher. They love, uh, especially social uh, Zodiac kind of, uh, got him back on people's radar. Uh, and then social network really solidified him as a major, as one of the major filmmakers of our time. Uh, and but then people go back to Fight Club and Seven and all that. To me, Zodiac, I cannot imagine him ever doing better than this. I can't imagine most filmmakers ever doing better than this. I can't like just every decision is the right one for the movie being made. I don't know if he's ever made a film with as sure a hand for, as far as tone I, I as would, this. I would agree that this is his best film. I coincidentally rewatched it fairly recently as well, including watching the director's cut for the first time. Yeah. I had never seen that yeah. before. It's, it only has a few more minutes, and I actually don't know the film well enough to remember to know what those well, minutes I, are. Well, I looked it up. Okay. Um, and one of the things is that part where it goes black for a while and you just hear news reports, yeah. that's much longer than it was yeah, in the Jen theater. Was, Jen was wondering about that. <laughs> um, and I found that really, uh, um, really interesting, especially once you finish the film and you realize, oh, that covers the four years that this guy... Yeah, who the most likely suspect was in prison and not active. Yeah, um, but you don't realize it at the time. I think that was that's really cool. Yeah, and it's just everybody is operating at their best. Uh, I think, you know, I think Mark Ruffalo is doing great work. I think, and just and the ensemble nature of the cast. There are three basic leads, but Brian Cox is is absolutely amazing as this weird showboat guy who is an actual. Yeah. personality at the time and then of course were we doing the beepies at the time i almost want to even though i only recently changed the best cameo category to the bruce mcgill award for best performance under 15 minutes uh-huh. i almost want to change that to the john carroll lynch award because his performance is arthur lee allen you yeah. and i've talked about it before in my mind that performance got bigger and broader and more over the top you watch it it's it's insanely restrained what like it's a very restrained performance that still has like in bright lights this man is horrifying (laughs) and he obviously did it um it's i i cannot speak well enough of this film i'm I'm actually it's it's a film that caused me to go back and it's been a couple years since i've made a top hundred uh, oh, okay. it, spur- it like spurred me on to do that. And I think it will pop into that top hundred for the first time ever. Um, I just remember it, uh, completely it just rocking my world when I saw it in the theater in the middle of the day in 2007, when I worked at the arc light and I got to go see it on my day off. Yeah. Um, uh, and because I had like written off David Fincher at that point, yeah. I had basically said, you know, uh, you know, seven is a, has its, you know, cheap charms, but, uh, I didn't like any of his other movies at that point. Um, and I like left the theater being like, am I, was I, was I, I've been completely wrong. Like, obviously yeah. this man's a genius. Um, it's undeniable at this point. Um, I still don't think fight club or alien three are very good. I don't know. I haven't watched alien three again in a long time, but I, I have watched seven again. Seven, as I it's, get older, there there are things that jump out about Seven more that I really like. I, mean, I think you really get him, see him getting a handle on his sense of tone and pacing, especially. Yeah. The plot of Seven is still pretty ridiculous. It is, but, you know, it's... But that's the thing, is it's a ridiculous plot made somehow horrendously feasible by how he makes it. Yeah. I think. 
I always get hung up on the fact that the one guy gets found exactly a year after. Because in order for that to happen, yeah. John Doe has to know that Brad Pitt is not going to notice the eyes, the wife's eyes on the portrait the first time he's there. Yeah. He's going to have to notice it the second day. Yeah. It's real, <laughs> it's real Dark Knight Joker level of uh, control there. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, oh, shoot. What was I going to say? Oh, damn. Oh, it was a, it's about Zodiac. Oh, right. When you saw it in the theater, you said that you actually got kind of paranoid about life. Really? Did I say that? That you that when the movie was over, you stayed till the end of the credits, and there was one other guy in the theater. Oh, that yeah. stayed till the I end remember of the that now. Yeah. Okay. So I started watching it. Like, when I said that I started and then finished, it took me like two or three days to to finish the whole film because I was very busy with work. Um, but day one, I had started it. And got about 15 minutes in before I actually had to go and, and have dinner with with uh, some friends. Um, and Jen had the car, so I was going to be meeting these people somewhere, which meant I was going to be taking an Uber. Uh-huh. No problem. I've taken an Uber before. before. No, no issue Taking an Uber all. hundreds of times. Hun- literally hundreds, if not tens of thousands of times. Um, and so... No issue at all, but I literally had just seen enough to see his first, to see Zodiac's first crime. Oh. And then I jump in a stranger's car at night, <laughs> and I'm just like, this guy could drive me anywhere, and if I don't jump out of the car, I'm dead. And it was just a weird thing. I wasn't scared, but I, it, like, it's a film that just creates paranoia in you, and in Ah, listeners, if you haven't seen Zodiac, seek it out, and uh, maybe I've built it up a little bit much, but I don't think so. Uh, All right, I've only got one more movie. Oh, really? I thought you had several more. uh, Yeah, I I missed it. Well, I have two more, but one, uh, I'm under embargo, so I can't talk Mm. about it. Um, So I will talk, and then I do have a couple of TV things that I want to highlight. Okay. My one other movie that I watched is one that I came out last year and i don't understand how this has been so under the radar i don't know if it's one of those movies that just speaks to me personally but um it's fantastic it's a uh, uh, directed by a woman named Susanna fogel and it's called life partners and it's a comedy oh yeah wherein um the woman from community whose name is either gillian or jillian i, I believe it's gillian okay gillian jacobs is that mm-hmm. right uh and w- one of my favorite young actresses leighton meester mm-hmm. um from I know her from Gossip Girl. She was also in The Judge this year, but okay. I won't hold that against her. Um, they can't all be winners. Yeah. Uh, so they play best friends. Leighton Meester's character is gay, and Gillian Jacobs' character is straight, uh, but they are each other's life partners. That's the mm-hmm. movie. You know, they're, they're you know, the, they, and it, it starts out a little bit on the nose where they actually have a conversation about, like, um, I'll never find anyone I like as much as you or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. Um and then Gillian Jacobs actually meets a guy and starts having a serious relationship and um, sort of, you could say, maturing and sort of growing. She's not growing apart from her friend. She's just not spending all her time with her friend now because she has this other thing. Yeah. And so um, Leighton Meester is going through a lot of shit because of that. <laughs> He's like, you know, yeah. uh, it's this feeling of abandonment or feeling of judgment or feeling she's feeling sad because she hasn't grown and it's just it's it's one of those movies that's 
that sounds so low stakes, I guess. Yeah. But is so perfectly observed in its pictures of friendships or of relationships or just of the way that people people interact. Um, and the way, as much as I, I know I, I joked about it being a little on the nose earlier in the opening scene, but later it gets so smart with its economy of, um, uh, of dialogue or of expressions to translate how, um, <laughs> how, how these people feel about each other. How, you know, there's, uh, the two characters, um, I'm forgetting their names, um, but I'll just call them Leighton and Gilly, Gillian. Um, Leighton and Gillian watch America's Next Top Model, model together. Okay. And um, once they've grown apart, they're not really doing that anymore. Leighton Meester Olmporn is watching America's Next Top Model, model with this girl that she's dating. Mm-hmm. And she makes a joke. The same kind of joke that Gillian Jacobs would have laughed at. Yeah. But this girl she's dating, now you'd think the easy route to go would be this girl doesn't get the joke or doesn't find it funny. Right. What... Susanna Fogel chooses to do instead is to have this girl not be able to stop laughing. Like, this is the funniest thing she's ever heard. Oh. And Leighton Meester has his reaction like, all right. Like, at first she's like, yeah. And then she's like, all right. I know. It's, you can just see it on Leighton Meester's yeah. face. Um, I really hope that Leighton Meester gets, as she grows, gets more credit uh, as an actress because I think she's fantastic. I've heard good things about this film. And uh, I heard good things about her in it. So good, yeah. Good. Uh, I uh, it also has a great uh, supporting cast as well. Um, Gabby Sidibe is in it. Okay. Um, Adam Brody uh, is okay. in it. Mark Firestein, Firestein. You know, he's uh, a character actor you'd totally recognize if you saw. A oh, picture of him. he was on um, West Wing, right? Um, he's was he? He's not one of the Sklar brothers, <laughs> right? Is yeah, that who okay. I'm thinking of? That's exactly. Yeah, you're exactly right. Um, and then a couple of SNL alums. Um, Kate McKinnon has one scene that uh, it's a centerpiece. It's Leighton Meester, one of Leighton Meester's bad dates. Okay, uh, it's just one scene. It's fantastic. Okay. Um, uh, and then uh, Abby Elliott, um, who's Chris Elliott's daughter, and oh, is okay. also yeah, on yeah. was on Saturday Night Live or is I don't know. I don't yeah. watch Saturday Night Live. I'm way too old for that. Um, <laughs> she's fantastic. She's a a much bigger character um, in the in the movie. And uh, I just, it felt, uh, I, I, I felt so deeply for these people. And I also feel like, and it was like, always feels, this feels creepy to say, but I feel like I would totally be friends with both of them. Even though the movie is completely upfront about their flaws mm-hmm. uh, as people, I feel like the way that they interact and the way that they talk and, and think about things and joke, I'm like, God, I would totally be friends with them. <laughs> well, you enjoy, do you watch America's Next Top Model? Uh, I haven't for a long time. I but did you used I, to. Yes, I did. Okay, all right. I watched Project Runway. There, the, oh, I'm probably getting them mixed up. I'm sorry. <laughs> They're very uh, different shows, but uh, they're slightly different shows. Um, one of my favorite movies from 2013 is Francis Ha, which actually oh, yeah. has a similar. Did you see it? Oh yeah. Okay. It's great. Yeah, it's, great. it's kind of a similar story I, in some ways, and, and that was great in a way that I was all prepared. Just not not that I went in saying I'm gonna hate this, but I was prepared to hate it. Yeah, just in case. Yeah, um, I think because I had so disliked uh, Greenberg, is that what the movie was yeah, called? Yeah. I really didn't like that. So I was, I had my guard up a little bit when I saw Francis Ha, and I loved it. Yeah, it's great. Um, okay, so I forget. I think it's I think it's definitely my turn now, right? Because you yeah, don't have anything I'm, else. I'm out of movies. Okay, except for that one I can't talk about. Can you say what it is? 
I don't. I, I'm gonna. All right. I'm gonna choose to. Uh, I'm gonna be uh, like Caesar's wife. I don't think I actually know this reference. Uh, what is it? Caesar's wife must be above reproach because she's close to Caesar. She oh, okay. can't even appear like she's ever breaking oh, I the see. law. Or okay. So I don't think I actually. Because uh, of course I had heard that idea uh-huh. before, but I don't know if I'd ever made that connection. Um, okay. I saw David Zellner's Kamiko the Treasure Hunter. I'm very jealous. Uh, should I not be? Uh, no, you should be. Uh, <laughs> it was pretty great. I kind of... It, it's, such a, it's such a wonderful little film. Um, for those that don't know, there's been an urban legend for years about... Chupacabras. Yeah, that's what it's about. <laughs> the treasure turns out to be just a big box of chupacabras. <laughs> <laughs> oh, be careful what you wish for, David. <laughs> so, uh, oh man, that's a movie I'd want to see. Um, yeah, uh, so there's this urban legend that in the early 2000s, there's this uh, strange, possibly mentally imbalanced a uh, young Asian woman who saw Fargo, mistook it for a documentary, and uh, decided to go hunting for the bag of money that Steve uh-huh. Buscemi buries in the snow. And so as she went hunting, so she flies to Minnesota and freezes to death in the in the snow. So that's the that's the urban legend that I had that I had heard for years. Okay, I never quite I never took it upon myself to look up if it was true or not. Um, but I was, I assumed it was not, but part of me thought maybe it is stranger, th- certainly stranger things than that yeah. have happened. Yeah. Um, and so the Zellners uh, decided they were going to make a movie about that urban legend um, and put some, you know, do some research into it and that kind of thing. And do you know, can I tell you? Sure. My favorite um, story that seems like an urban legend, but is true. Okay. Is that uh, there was a guy who wanted personalized license plates and you get when you fill out the thing you get three choices Mm -hmm. and he wanted either i think it was either sailing if you couldn't have sailing he wanted boating if you couldn't want those he didn't want one so he wrote no tags he ended up getting plates that said no tags which is funny enough but then he started getting the mail years and years of everyone's unpaid parking tickets for cars that didn't have license plates because apparently the police had been entering those into the system uh-huh. as no tags. So suddenly he's flooded with hundreds of thousands of dollars of unpaid parking tickets going back like 10 years. That's one of my favorite stories that sounds made up that is true. Man, that poor guy. Yeah. <laughs> and then he eventually killed himself, I have to assume. Um, but yeah, so what they do is they they take this premise that is kind of inherently silly and they take it seriously while also understanding how it can be funny. And they try to imagine, okay, let's, let's really try to develop this character. What must a person's life look like for them to look at this situation, misinterpret it, but be so desperate to believe it that they will fly to another country and actually look into it? So it's... And Rinko Kikuchi plays uh, Kamiko, and she's an actress I've liked for a while. I didn't love the movie Babel, and I thought her story was completely superfluous and unnecessary, uh, but it was still very powerful. Had they made her story its own little short film, I thought I'd be thrilled. But, uh, but I've liked her in everything I've seen her in, and, uh, which I think is actually not very many things. But um, 
But she really commits to this character. She does not overplay the silliness. She doesn't overplay the sadness. She just seems like a like sort of a naive young girl. But but when you see the life that she is leaving to pursue this, mm-hmm. uh, you understand. Well, maybe it's not so much that she that she's silly or dumb. She's just desperate, and desperation can cause people to do some pretty strange things. Uh, what I the way I also viewed it. Oh, and I, actually, before I get to that, um, it's gorgeous. It's shot really well. I mean, we're see, we see urban Tokyo and we see the frozen tundra of Minnesota, and both of them are shot in in a way that emphasizes. You know, that's not really a tundra. Right? What was that? It's not really a tundra. Yeah. I think you have to go pretty for for farther up north Close enough. to get to tundra. It's, uh, I mean, it's okay. is it, is there such thing as an emotional tundra? Because I've been there. Okay. And that's what it is. Then it's that. Okay. Um, And so, but that's the thing. So these very empty, so there's a very empty space and a very full space, but it's shot in a way that where it doesn't matter if she's surrounded by people in a city or she's all alone in the middle of a, a snowy field, she is equally alone. She, it, it's an equal amount of uh, loneliness. And so it's, I, I, I can't speak highly enough about the film, but what I really responded to is stop me when this starts to sound familiar. She saw a movie that she thought was absolutely amazing and that she couldn't get out of her head. And she looked at the life that she was living. It was a life of quiet desperation. And she decided, I don't want this life anymore inspired by this movie i'm going to go elsewhere and seek my fortune even though my own mother and my boss and the people in my (laughs) life think it's completely impractical that sounds a little familiar to me and everybody else living in this city except (laughs) maybe uh 15 and uh and so i and but that's the thing i think almost anybody can relate to that idea which is anytime you're pursuing a dream no matter how Someone will always say it's it's silly to pursue it because it's not going to happen, and uh, and you just pursue it anyway. So I feel like there's a it takes this urban legend that we all laughed at when we heard it and turns it into something very specific yet universal, which is something we always talk mm-hmm. about. And it's just a marvelous little film. If you get the chance to watch it, uh, please do so. All right, uh, this has gone on longer than I thought it would. Um, we're our, at almost an hour, and we already said. So we were going to try and be shorter. I should have cut out Zodiac. Uh, that's all right. Um, so I, uh, I'm not going to spend too much time on TV, but I did want to bring up a couple things. I found myself watching a lot of trashy TV lately. Okay. Um, yeah, I've but, been following you on Twitter. But uh, good em- trashy. Empire sounds like so much fun. Yeah, Empire, How to Get Away with Murder, and uh, Nashville came back yesterday. I haven't watched the, the I don't know, what do they call that? Winter premiere or spring premiere, whatever yeah. they call that. Um, I haven't watched the new Nashville yet. But um, it's trashy, but it's in a way that I still stand by. I'm not sure what it says about me or what it says about the nature of TV right now. If this is sort of like a um, – we spent over a dozen years like in our golden age and that's great. Mm-hmm. And we saw all these great TV dramas, but maybe there's sort of a realization among not, – not that there wasn't this kind – there wasn't, you know – um, trashier TV on that whole time. Right. But I feel like there's a certain segment of the TV-watching populace who is coming around on the idea, it's okay to watch shows that are just fun. 
Yeah. You know, and it's okay for in um in way, you know, the um the creators and the writers um can Trojan horse some more serious ideas in there, mm-hmm. but we don't have to have something that is um announcing itself as art uh every time we turn on the TV. Um Okay, I also want to talk about... Um, what was the quote, by the way, from Empire that you tweeted? Something made me laugh hysterically. <laughs> it's like, upload it to all the websites and make sure it can't be traced back to you. Done. <laughs> upload it to all the well, websites. There's, I actually did. Okay. There, I, I should have put a little ellipsis in there. It's, okay. It's a little more specific, but not that much more specific. Okay. <laughs> um, all right. Um, I also want to talk about... Um, uh, well... Glee is terrible, and now I'm just seeing it through. Okay, I, I think I had said before that, like, oh, I'm actually enjoying this final season. Yeah. The last two episodes, it was a two-parter. Maybe it was just one blip spread over two weeks, but it was uh, un- unbearable. Um, but uh, I want to talk about guest stars. Okay. Um, first off, um, uh, Andy Daly and Paul Shear did voices on uh, Adventure Time. Andy mm-hmm. Daly had done – I'd been on them before, and he's back as that character. Okay. Um, who – calls him i don't know if you remember uh, if you've seen enough to know of the character who calls himself the king of ooh but he's really just a con man um i think so I, I maybe i don't know i've i only saw the first season oh okay no then i don't think you got to that i think okay. you'd seen more than that um speaking of fargo as we were allison tolman from tv's fargo was on uh, a season best so far episode of archer okay um and then i need to talk about last night's broad city episode which I had my fears about a sophomore slump for a show that was seemed that perfectly conceived mm-hmm. as season one, but holy shit, the fact that they have an episode like this in them, which is, I, I said the Archer episode was the season best. This is already a series best episode. Okay. Um, it's called Knockoffs. Um, it's unbelievable the amount of uh, very uh, specific peculiarities and weirdness they get in there, while also being a very serious serialized story about their friendship and about their relationships. You know, Abby has one of the two uh, women on the show. Abby has been pining after her neighbor, Jeremy for the longest time in this episode. She finally gets to have a date with him and um, it doesn't go um, the way you want. In some ways it's like, it's classic sitcom like, Oh, she didn't see that coming, but it spins that in a way uh, that I don't want to give away, um, but ends up being um, weirder than that and also more heartfelt than that. And then it also – and then Alana's story is that her grandmother had died and her uh, parents have come into town. I guess her grandmother lived in the city or whatever. Her parents have come into the city um, for uh, the Shiva. Um, and her parents are played by two energies you would never think to put pair together – as a couple, All but right. are perfect. Susie Essman and Bob Balaban. <laughs> and okay. I want to spin off of just these two. <laughs> For one thing, Susie Essman, I, I tweeted this too, that I just like, ha- Susie Essman being on Broad City last night made me realize just how much I miss having her on my TV. Mm-hmm. She's so great on Curb Your Enthusiasm. And she's fantastic here in a way that seems like... Yeah, she's this guest star coming in for this one episode, but you look at her and you look at Alana and you're like, yep, that's a mother and daughter. Mm-hmm. They, uh, Her performance is perfect. Um, she's rolling with all the weird punches in Broad City fashion because it's a show that's real and takes place in New York City but then has these flights of fancy that are woven into the real stories. Yeah. So um, 
Alana and her mom go to Chinatown to get knockoff bags, like handbags. Mm-hmm. Um, but immediately they're like, don't try to sell us on the this shit for the tourists. Like, we know the real shit. So then they have to blindfold themselves and get into a van and we get driven to another part of town and then go down into the sewer system where there's a shop selling handbags. Ah. But all this is happening while they're having, like, normal conversations. Uh, that's just Broad City. It's... Um, Kind of neat. I like that. It, yeah, because it has it mixes sketch comedy weirdness. Like, mm. let's just burn off this one idea that can stand on its own as a sketch, and then mixes it into the reality of the show. That seems kind of Woody Allen esque. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, um, I hadn't thought about that, but that does seem like the kind of thing he would do. Um, anyway, I just wanted to bring it up because it was a it was a perfect episode of television. Um, the first great episode I've seen of anything in 2015, um, and. Also, again, Bob Balaban and Susie Essman should have their own spinoff where they're a married couple. <laughs> I like me. I, I really enjoy Bob Balaban. And it's so interesting to watch how much his career has changed as far as the types of performances he's expected to give. Because if you look at him 30 years ago, he was the jittery guy, like a guy who had a real energy to him that that put you on edge. Um, and you just thought like, oh, geez, this guy is making me kind of uncomfortable. Yeah. Now he's the very quiet guy yeah. who's just who, yes, could probably be a serial killer, but he's <laughs> not going to put you on edge in that yeah. way. Well, in Broad City, his he's the um, his Elana is talking to him about unconventional uh, sex techniques or sex moves or stuff like mm-hmm. that, and he's um, just completely it's bob balban style very quiet and yeah. curious in a completely non-judgmental way he doesn't know what any of this is about mm-hmm. but he's just naturally he's just like curious like oh okay now wouldn't that oh i see like, <laughs> uh it, it was it was a perfect episode and i think uh anyone who hasn't watched broad city yet maybe should watch that and that will convince him to watch it but also uh you know you might it's the best episode there is so you might spoil it for yourself but they're all great i was not i was not a huge fan of moonrise kingdom but i thought it used bob balaban quite Mm -hmm. well Mm -hmm. um yeah as far as tv uh the shows that i watch uh which i did not watch uh, parks and rec yet uh (laughs) i did watch gotham and i have decided that uh and other people have said this that you know of course there's some storylines that are better than others but i think um the character of the penguin is very solid, played very well, and the idea of looking at this season and probably next season as the rise of the penguin, and the idea of him just, he just gets shit on and kicked around so much that you can see how the guy coming from this background could become not merely the man in charge, but absolutely ruthless with no patience for anybody and they really do a good job of showing us that just the the level of abuse he gets so that when he becomes sort of the kingpin of gotham i'm i'm excited to see how that will manifest itself but anyway and i also like what they've been doing with uh i like what they've been doing with with edward nigma ever since last week when you said that maybe they toy with the idea that he's a guy who's only ever only ever been like brain focused and now he's kind of attracted to somebody is kind of giving giving his heart mm-hmm. away and that's probably not going to go well and now and so he'll retreat from that ever since you said that last week i've kind of locked into that and i think that's where they're going with the character and i'm not and uh, i'm not terribly opposed to it so okay i also went back and watched a season of a season of survivor that i'd never seen 
season nine, uh, 17, which I thought was uh, really good. And uh, the rest has, the whole season? Yeah. Oh, it, that's why so, you only got two movies on that list. Well, it's it's a good... It, Survivor is an easy thing to watch while I'm working uh. because I actually don't have to pay that much attention to it, which I would never want to do with a movie. Right. Um, but uh, And then lastly, this is not TV, nor is it a movie. It is a little uh, three-minute video. Uh, go to YouTube and type in every 90s commercial. Oh, you're not the only person who is... Have other people recon- done this? Yeah, I, I haven't watched it, but yeah. In parentheses, uh, it'll say... Uh, you'll have some options. Click on the one that says uncensored. Oh, okay. Uh, it is uh, delightful. And uh, don't read any descriptions or anything like that. Just open it up, click on it, and enjoy. All right. Um, that's it. We got to get to the main episode because yeah. uh, we're doing them both tonight. So um, thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.